Our primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 20 through chapter 7, verses 28. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Where Jesus, running on ahead of us, has taken up his permanent post as high priest for us in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests, who are descendants of Levi, must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who were also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. The priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the one who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. So if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altars as priest. What I mean is, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. This change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest, not being the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside, but it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus, for God said to him, The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But Jesus lives forever. His priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. 
He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of people. But Jesus did this once for all of us when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath. And the son has been made the perfect high priest forever. The word of the Lord. Y'all congratulate Aaron afterwards for the marathon reading. That's, that's not easy to do, y'all. Last year, a curious controversy erupted when the Catholic Diocese of Phoenix announced that thousands of baptisms were considered invalid. That is, they weren't considered real baptisms in the eyes of the Catholic Church. What was the reason? Was it because the people who were baptized had done something wrong? No, uh, almost all of these baptisms were infant baptisms. Was it because the priest had been convicted of some terrible crime? No, no, the priest faithfully ministered for decades. So what was the reason? It was because the priest said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And most of you are like, okay, so what's the problem? Well, the correct baptismal formula is I baptize you, not we baptize you. The priest was saying it wrong. And here I thought the Catholic Church didn't care much about people's pronouns, but apparently they take them quite seriously. Thousands of baptisms from 1995 to 2021 were declared invalid. As is in the sight of God, they did not happen at all. Now, you might remember from two Sundays ago, our likely author, Apollos or Priscillus, uh, in talking to their Hebrew Christian congregation in Rome, said they were not ready for the metaphorical solid food yet, that they were still drinking milk like they were some spiritual adult babies. But the last two Sundays now have been something of a maturing pause, and now implies our author, we are ready to eat. And so in our solid food reading in Hebrews today, our author is going to begin what Bible scholars have labeled a sermon within a sermon. In order to make his most important point, he will spend an enormous amount of words spanning chapters 7, 8, 9, and part of 10. And his point is this, Jesus as the great high priest is so better than previous institutional religion in every way to the point that religion as the world has known it is now utterly obsolete. And to do this, he's going to start by focusing on this ancient mysterious figure from the book of Genesis chapter 14, which was our first reading this morning, so let's check it out again. After Abram returned from his victory over Kendalamar and his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God, brought Abram some bread and some wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. 
Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he recovered. So, Abram, before he is named Abraham by God, wins this battle. Really a skirmish of a bunch of tribal kings leveling up against one another. But the result is that Abraham gets his kidnapped nephew back. And it also means for Abraham, who's pretty new to the neighborhood, that now he is significantly less likely to be expelled or murdered. However... He's on his way to talk to the king of Sodom when out of nowhere the king of Salem, this guy named Melchizedek, pops in to toast Abraham's victory. But the weird thing is about Melchizedek is that nobody knows where he comes from. He has no origin story. And at first it sounds like he would be a pagan king like everyone else. But then the story says that he's also a priest of the Most High God. And despite its brevity, his blessing of Abraham is so profoundly good and authoritative that Abraham offers up one-tenth of his spoils from the battle. Now, this has almost nothing to do with the rest of the sermon, but I know some of you are wondering this right now. Yes, this is where that one-tenth offering, this idea, this, this concept of a tithe, it comes from this story. Abraham tithe to Melchizedek. Now, we don't teach tithing at Parkside, so this passage is never going to be in a stewardship sermon, okay? I promise you. But I just want to point out that, one, this is not a biblical law in Scripture, This is a story about a single one-time event. And two, note that it is also completely voluntary. Abraham doesn't tithe because he has to, but because he wants to. Okay, tithing spiel over. Some of you are really happy to hear this now. Like, you're like, sermon is done for you. Good. All right, but what does our preacher in Hebrews find so important about Melchizedek? Verse 2 in Hebrews chapter 7. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and the king of Salem means king of peace. There's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Apollos here is pointing out what most Jewish commentary would have already noted about Melchizedek, that his name combined with where he ruled meant that he was both the king of justice and the king of peace. And it was generally believed that the Messiah, who God was going to send to deliver Israel from its oppressors, would be a king of justice and a king of peace. Now also, when it says that Melchizedek has no ancestors, our preacher of Hebrews doesn't mean this literally, but rather this is a reflection of Jewish interpretive practice. It was commonly said by rabbis, what is not in Torah is not in the world. And what this meant was that when Jewish scriptures left out otherwise important details, the very absence of those details was supposed to mean something to the interpreter. So when Melchizedek doesn't get an origin story in Genesis, Jewish rabbis decided that it meant that he had no earthly origin, no beginning, no end. And Apollo seizes on all these existing Jewish beliefs 
about Melchizedek to say, well, hmm, doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus? But Apollos is going to make the assertion that Melchizedek doesn't just have coincidental similarities with Jesus, but that Melchizedek was used by God for the sole purpose of foreshadowing what God would one day do in Jesus. Still, why bring up Melchizedek at all here in the opening of this mini-sermon on why Jesus is the great high priest who has made institutional religion as we know it obsolete? Because Jesus, on the surface, appears to be missing a key requirement as a priest. In Judaism, for well over a thousand years before Jesus, there was a priestly class called the Levites. It was a hereditary group of priests descended from the tribe of Levi. And they were the only ones allowed to be priests. Jesus, however, is from a different tribal lineage. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, which is a kingly lineage. It's the same line as the famous Jewish king David comes from. And so this could have been the objection. How can followers of Jesus have the audacity to say we don't need institutional religion when Jesus himself didn't even meet the standards of a priest for his own religion? I mean, you might even be able to call him the Messiah if you want to, but don't say we don't need the temple system anymore. A king and a priest are very different things. Because of these possible objections, and therefore some reasons that his Hebrew Christian audience in Rome might be tempted to revert to a form of Judaism as the persecution against Christians heats up, Apollos is going to link Jesus to Melchizedek and show why Melchizedek's spiritual priesthood is superior to any Levite hereditary priesthood. Verse 4. Consider then how great this Melchizedek it was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who is not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing on Abraham and the one who has already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. Now, if you're going to argue for overturning a thousand years of established religious practice, you better be able to go back even farther than a thousand years. And Apollos does this by going to the time before Judaism, before Israel, to the very first Hebrew, Abraham, before he even gets his name. And he says, look, Abram knelt before Melchizedek. To receive a blessing. He submitted to Melchizedek as a spiritual priest. And he gave tribute to Melchizedek in gratitude. 
This means that whatever spiritual authority one might confer to Abraham as the spiritual founder of Judaism, well, that founder owes his blessing to someone greater. So yes, Jesus is not from the hereditary priestly line. But he doesn't need to be. Hereditary credentials are inferior to Melchizedek's credentials, and Jesus shares those credentials. And so how does Jesus become a priest like Melchizedek? Look at verse 16. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. Our preacher of Hebrews uses this fantastic Greek word. It's this word, akatalaitu, and it's used to describe how enduring Jesus' life was over the power of death. It's the only place this word is found in the New Testament, and the word is so sophisticated that it is rarely found in the whole body of Greek literature. But it means incapable of dissolution, indestructible, endless, In other words, the hereditary requirements of mortal men are nothing compared to the immortal power of Jesus. But watch how Apollos ties this all into a rhetorical bow. It's quite amazing. He's going to bring the only other reference to Melchizedek in the entire Bible, Psalms 110, which was our call to worship this morning, and show how Jesus perfectly completes God's plan. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and he will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. So Jesus taking over the priestly powers of institutional religion. This is not temporary, but permanent. The Levite system that came after Melchizedek was a stopgap measure by God. But God gives an oath. He gives a promise to clarify the finality of Jesus. He's not just another stopgap measure so then the church can come along and set up a new system of priests in a similar way. No, Jesus is the final priest. But here's the other thing. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. That is, it's a psalm about the future divine king of God's people. Remember, Melchizedek was a priest and a king. Two roles that were never allowed to be held by one person in Israel. Through their entire history, you might say they had a very strict separation of temple and state. And yet... Jesus fulfills what seems like an impossible prophecy in Psalm 110. Jesus was a valid priest in the spiritual lineage of Melchizedek. But Jesus is also a valid king in the royal lineage of the tribe of Judah. 
by proving him to be both priest and king. Apollos makes sense of our strange story in Genesis 14 in a way that no one had done in all previous history. And he makes sense of it in a way that only Jesus could accomplish in himself. Jesus takes the spiritual power of Melchizedek and magnifies it. Jesus takes the myth of Melchizedek and makes it history. Jesus takes the mystery of Melchizedek and gives it meaning. Now you might be saying, okay, cool story, bro. But like apart from knowing the answer to Melchizedek for some weird Bible trivia, like what is this showing about my life now? Let's look at verse 22. Because of his oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. A few weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus being the great high priest means that however you think priests are or religious leaders, however good you think they are at providing access to God, Jesus provides better access to God. I, I know my prayers are heard by God because of Jesus. But Apollos today is saying something different here. The rituals that bind me to God, what we call the sacraments, these, these outward signs of an inner spiritual reality, these are not guaranteed by any religious leader, but by Jesus Christ alone. And I know you've already heard me say it before in this series, but it bears repeating. It is hard to overemphasize how absolutely unheard of this idea was for religion in the ancient world. But you know what? It's still resisted by most religion today as well. Why? Because as much as we may not like to admit it, Human nature loves the assurance of precise magic words. Our anxious hearts like seeing an official, professional, holy person guarantee that God loves me and that God accepts me. And I think the thing is that most of the time, institutional religion can get away with that. And that its adherents will actually like it until that official, professional, holy person gets the magic words wrong. Then your rituals aren't real. Then your baptism isn't valid. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it felt like being told? I'm sorry, you were never baptized. Can, can you imagine being told that your loved one who has already died was never baptized? And in a tradition that says that baptism is a requirement for salvation? Y'all, institutional religion 
the kind that does not fully rely on Jesus to save those that have come to God through him, that will eventually fail you. And when it does, it will leave you more anxious about God than if you ever decided not to believe in the first place. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful thinking, oh, well, this is just a Catholic problem. Or, oh, this is just a, 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 a problem with really religious, formal streams of Christianity. No, this, our church is not immune to this either. Look at verse 23. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Now, y'all, for better or for worse, I hope to serve Parkside until my daughter graduates from high school. Uh, that's better if you like me. That will be worse if you stop liking me. But at the end of the day, my time here is limited. So even if I stay here longer than my daughter going off to college, I will eventually die, 100% chance. Death will certainly prevent me from remaining in the office of pastor. But the danger of any pastor staying a long time is that congregants may be tempted to rely on their pastor as a guarantor of their faith. Oh, Colin, you've studied this stuff, so just tell me what I need to believe. Tell me what I need to do in order to maintain a healthy relationship with God. If I assure you, you feel assured. If I warn you, you feel warned. Uh, the, the pastor becomes the one who guarantees that you and God are in good standing, that you and God have a healthy relationship. And you know, part of that naturally happens, and it's not a terrible thing, because hopefully that's a result of some well-earned trust. But that dynamic is never sustainable. Because what happens when the pastor after me, or the pastor after him, or the pastor after her, maybe isn't as good of a guarantor? Maybe doesn't earn your trust for some reason, or maybe just, maybe just gets something wrong. What will happen to your faith then? Y'all, I can't tell you how many people I have seen walk away from their faith because some religious leader, pastor, worship leader, spiritual mentor, the Pope, has some kind of moral failing. Think about it. Logically speaking, the validity of your relationship with God has very little to do with the moral performance of a religious leader. The failure or even the outright hypocrisy of a religious leader doesn't disprove the truth of God. Unless, unless I have emotionally entangled my religious leader as a savior, guarantor, or intercessor before God. And then it does make sense, at least emotionally, to feel like the moral failing of a religious leader breaks my relationship with God. And that will create deep anxiety in my spirit. So friends, please hear me this morning. 
Hebrews says that even the best religious leaders are limited by human weakness. But God's Son has been made the perfect high priest forever. This means that when it comes to your spiritual health, to experiencing the assurance of whatever spiritual anxieties you have, there is no substitute for Jesus Christ. The good news is that Jesus is our only truly reliable Savior, guarantor, and intercessor before God. And He promises to be all of these things, not just for your life, but for your children's lives and your children's children for a thousand generations forever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
you, y'all. All right, Colin, we have three, three very different questions All right. for you. All right. Why have I never heard about Hebrews 7? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but okay, so let me, let me just make a, a, a guess, right? Hebrews, if you haven't been with us very long, is a very complicated book. It is very interesting. And typically, this is what I'm discovering. So I grew up in a, a conservative evangelical culture. I knew Hebrews, but I knew like snippets, mm-hmm. right? Just like people would like kind of proof text it or kind of bring it in. It's got, it's got some juicy lines, right? But like never actually like going through it like line by line and got the whole context. So I think uh, you might not have heard of Hebrews 7 because you're probably just in good company that most people have not heard all of Hebrews line by line over a period of six months uh, because it is pretty difficult and you could tell right like this was a this was a a very we, we had to even cut out a ton of stuff this week because he's making such sophisticated arguments and we're having to give you like a 10,000 foot overview um so yeah it's probably due to the complexity of it so if one of those with an invalid catholic baptism came to parkside would we be okay with them taking communion Yes, um, and to be clear on the, on the communion part, we, would, we recommend that you are baptized before you take communion because there's an order of operations that the church has historically kind of said this is how it works, um, but we're also very clear that no one should ever be barred from communion if, if you're like, I feel like the Lord wants me to take it. Uh, you want to have the, if you're hungry for Jesus, you come and take it. Um, but the reason why the, the Protestant, most Protestant denominations have a different view on the nature of like what makes a valid or invalid baptism is about the intent, right? So it's not, if you get the words wrong, well, if the intent is still the same, okay. then the intent makes it valid. Um, and you all notice, right, like when I do communion, I usually get the same words right, not always, <laughs> right? Um, and, and that's okay. That means your communion is still valid even if I don't get the words exactly right uh, because, again, the intent is there and that God's Spirit is actually being able to cover us for our um, sometimes lack of accuracy or mistakes in our words. There's a lot going on there. All right. Can a pastor's worldview or politics be a source of loyalty to the pastor or church instead of Jesus? Yes. Um, I see this happen a lot. I'm all sometimes even concerned about it in my own life, right? Is that oftentimes if we see a religious leader, right, and their politics are like aligned with my politics, then I kind of go like, oh, well, then they're good. I'm actually extra loyal to them because of their politics first, because that actually has a stronger pull or emotion in my life. And therefore, I'm going to believe believe what they believe about religion or faith because of their political views. And I see this happen on a conservative level. I see this happen on a liberal level. It's, it's not like just one group that does it. Um, and so I think it's important that even if you agree with uh, a religious leader's uh, political positions, mm-hmm. that you need to still be discerning and questioning uh, about their religious views mm-hmm. uh, and on their understanding of Jesus. I think the two, uh, it'd be great if they both overlap, but the two are not the same, and I think we need to be careful about that. Fantastic. Well, we just had another really interesting question um, come in, and Colin is going to dive into it tomorrow on Facebook Live, so make sure that you're subscribed on Facebook to the Parkside um, Facebook group or yeah 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 and then it records so even if you miss it it'll be there rest of the week great and it's you're gonna love it it's really it's gonna dive it looks long i see a lot of words yeah (laughs) it's gonna dive deep into theology which is his wheelhouse so make sure you tune in awesome thank you sam all right friends now let us stand and join our voices together as we prepare our hearts for communion